Greetings, one and all. You're listening to Make It Soon, the podcast where science fiction meets reality. This is a special bonus episode to celebrate the end of the season and go behind the scenes with some of the scientists whose real-life projects we talked about in the main shows. You'll be hearing me in one-to-one conversation with four different experts who are pioneering great sci-fi inventions right now. We'll be hearing first-hand accounts from the team building artificial wombs. They're literally growing living fetuses outside of the body. We'll be hearing how the British police are using AI to predict crimes before they happen, and how some Dutch entrepreneurs are using the flight physics of insects to build a whole new class of drone. But first up, we're turning our attention to the world of Star Trek and to that amazing medical gadget, the Tricorder. As we learned this season, the first working prototype has already been developed. Some genius doctors and engineers in the US worked night and day to build an incredible device called the Dexter, which saw them crowned as winners of the Global XPRIZE Tricorder competition. I caught up with Neil Singer, CEO of the company that's bringing Star Trek technology into our lives. Neil Singer, welcome. It's fantastic to have you here. I truly appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Well, thanks, Marcus. Thanks for having me. You're over on the East Coast, is that right? Yes, I'm, I'm actually based in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, fantastic. Are you a sci-fi fan yourself? You know, I, I grew up with it and I loved it as a kid. You know, unfortunately, I haven't read that much recently. But, you know, Marcus, I think starting to uh, interact with you a little bit is, is reigniting my passion for it. So I think <laughs> I'll pick up some of your books. I appreciate that. You know, if you get tired of the medical sector, I think you've got a career in diplomacy ahead of you because that, that was my <laughs> So before we leap into the Dexter, I would just whistle through some of the amazing achievements, uh, just as a quick recap for our listeners. You guys developed an algorithm for diagnosing 34 health conditions in a single device, including diabetes, atrial fibrillation, urinary tract infection, strokes, TB, pneumonia. I mean, a huge list. It reads like an extremely bad shopping list, but in the context of what you're going for it's kind of the dream i mean this is fantastic and in something that weighs less than five pounds and and you put a working prototype together under four years which i just think is incredible and i think the key usp here is that it's non-invasive so if you hate needles which a lot of people do you can really get on board with this i was really struck by how do you non-invasively measure blood glucose and white cell count? Well, it actually works on light principles. There's different waves of light and they reflect back and different pleth waves can be be read by these various different sensors. Pulse oximeter, uh, glucose, the hemoglobin, the white blood cell count, the way the various different components in your blood actually reflect back the light. That's basically how the whole thing works. 
One of the things we touched on in the show was T-waves, which have kind of been touted as a potential alternative to sort of harmful ionizing radiations like X-rays. And it sounds like you guys are already deploying that sort of technology. That's amazing. I joined the team not that long ago, and I was not part of the XPRIZE when they did it. So you'll hear me refer to they as opposed to we sometimes. Sure. People want to claim that I was part of this when they actually accomplished it. But the reason the team was so successful they had a great combination of different talents led by Dr. Basil Harris, who was kind of the visionary for the whole thing. And, and Basil, not only is he an emergency room doctor, but he's also a PhD in engineering. And he, he thinks like an engineer. He's a doctor who thinks like an engineer. <laughs> a casual polymath, you know, I guess. They're, they're just, you know, floating around these types of people, right? <laughs> just just buzzing it at every level. <laughs> and so, yeah, Basil, you know, thought about the problem of diagnoses and how you would solve it as an engineer, right? But with the knowledge of a doctor. And so that's kind of what enabled the whole thing to happen. It sounds like you're making really fantastic steps towards early intervention in the diagnostic field. That's the main strategy. Would that be right? I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, there, if there are issues that, you may, that would need to be flagged and identified really quickly, this is a really quick and inexpensive way of doing that. And that's kind of what we're doing to a large degree right now is getting those, that early warning signals for you and for the patient and for the doctor. You're right now focused on a specialized device. I think it's for is it congestive cardiac failure, where the patient is responsible for monitoring their own vital signs, I think three times a day, and then a healthcare professional interprets it remotely. Is that how you would envisage the Dexter being used where it's essentially self-care? with some external validation? Yeah, that's exactly what we're going for. The whole vision all along has been that this should be a device that is so easy to use that it can be used by the patient themselves in their home or a caregiver, so a parent with a child or child with an elderly parent. That's great. So really empowering people in their own homes to kind of take ownership of their own health data because that's a huge leap on from just Googling symptoms <laughs> vaguely and giving yourself a touch of hypochondria. This is an unashamedly nerdy show, Neil, and we're going to have a lot of Trekkies listening who freaking love tricorders. <laughs> what is stopping us getting our hands on a Dexter right now? There's a, a couple things. In, in the United States, uh, and that's our first target market, there are really a, a lot of steps one has to go through before it's approved by the regulatory authority, which in, in the U.S. is, is the... Food and Drug Administration. And, you know, the, the FDA approval itself is not something that's super time consuming. What's really time consuming is the data that you have to compile and all the testing you have to compile ahead of time before you submit to be able to prove that it, it works properly and it's safe and, and it's and it's compatible with other technologies that have already been on the market. Now we have, you know, what we're calling our pre-beta right now and the device is working great. The other thing is the user experience is really important to us. We want to make sure that it's as easy to use as any phone app that you would have today. And, and so we're refining that as well, getting ready for all the testing and then submitting the testing. Really, those are the steps that are that are stopping us right now from people getting their hands on it. Are you at the stage where you have a lucky few who are guinea pig test users at the moment? Yeah, we do. During the XPRIZE contest, we actually had 45 real patients with real conditions at the University of California, San Diego, that actually were tested with the, the precursor to the current Dexter that actually were, was used to actually confirm the diagnosis. And that was one of the reasons that the team won. 
was their accuracy in predicting it as well as the user experience. So there was those folks, 45 people, live patients, as well as friends and family that have been testing it all along. And Basil uses it himself on himself all the time as well. That's pretty fantastic. I would be impressed as a layperson that you've got a device that could accurately diagnose 45 people. What's the standard that the FDA are holding you to? Do they have a sort of benchmark number that you need to hit? They want you to demonstrate that is similar to what's in the marketplace today. And then there's also a series of other tests and data you have to have. You have to prove, for example, I mean, some, some mundane things like you can get the device wet and it's not going to be destroyed. You can drop it from, you know, not from the Empire State Building, but you can drop it from a reasonable, you know, where a consumer might drop it from and it's not going to shatter into a million pieces or, you know, it's not going to electrocute you. <laughs> I mean, you'd get a pretty quick diagnosis if it did. Like, that <laughs> 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 sounds like this is very much going to be in the home people using it on themselves, they don't need to be a doctor. But I'm interested in where this will sit in the market. Will it be something that your doctor recommends if you have a chronic condition and it needs monitoring? Or do you see it more like something like a Fitbit where it's kind of like a, a lifestyle choice? That's a great, what a great question that is. I mean, we, that we, we talk about that a lot. As a matter of fact, we're looking at both of those. For that latter case, we're probably going to put out a site for pre-orders. Oh, wow. Hey, that's exciting. Do you have a domain name that we can plug for our listeners? Or is that kind of all hush-hush at the moment? <laughs> Yeah, we're on Basil Leaf Tech right now, basilleaftech.com. That's with two yep. L's, basilleaftech.com. Uh, and, you know, it probably at some point or other, that will be converted over or we'll have a prominent spot on that website for the pre-order. You heard it here first, guys. Stay tuned. That's really exciting. You talked in the XPRIZE win, a key feature was not just the hardware you've developed, but the algorithm underpinning it and the way it interfaces between existing healthcare databases and trend data and the patient's own patient data. Do you envisage a scenario in which the Dexter might start to resemble a smartphone in that you might actually invite other providers who specialize in one type of diagnostic that you guys haven't yet developed an algorithm for being able to come onto your platform? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a, great, it's a great question. Technology as a whole has really benefited from open platforms and open standards. What you describe, Marcus, that's probably the ultimate destination of where we're all heading. A lot of the focus at the moment is obviously on in-home consumer use. Do you see potential applications for the Dexter in military situations or field surgery, so conflict zones, disaster relief, and would it require region-specific adaptations? Yeah, that's a really good question. Military, probably not so much, and the, and the main reason there is militaries are usually very well-funded. You know, perhaps like in, a, in an advanced field position, absolutely. But what we are really interested in is rural health and countries that are and, and regions that are don't have access to physicians or, or to doctors or technology by being able to make this technology easy to use and inexpensive. And frankly, also the battery life on this thing is really extraordinary. With applications on areas and regions that are not have great access to healthcare, we do see that there's a fantastic opportunity to employ the Dexter in those areas as well. Neil, this is just so exciting to think that you guys are actually making this device a reality and you're dreaming so big for it on a worldwide scale. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our listeners that we've not yet covered? It's been a pleasure and root for us. <laughs> and <laughs> when the pre-order comes, absolutely pre-order your Dexter device. Yeah, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. I can't talk about it now, but everyone we spoke to about the price point that we're thinking about has been very surprised at, at how low we're, we're talking about it. So appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, Marcus, and to your listeners. Now from tricorders to termites, or some flying insect beginning with T. Space ticks? I guess tardigrades would fit that bill. 
Does being strapped to the ISS count as flying? One for the scholars? Anyway, in this season, we had a couple of episodes on the insane evolution of terrestrial bugs and how they compare to their sci-fi counterparts. We also had a great episode on drones, droids, and robots of all varieties. Well, I tracked down the scientists living at the intersection of these two worlds. Join me on a digital trip to the Netherlands, where I caught up with Dr. Matej Karasek, founder of the intriguing Delphi Drones. Joining us from the Netherlands, I'm excited to welcome to the show Dr. Matej Karasek, former researcher at Delft University of Technology and now a co-founder and CEO of the tech startup Flapper Drones. Matej, welcome to the show. It's awesome having you here. Welcome, Marcus. Yeah, it's, I'm happy to be here. Matej, you've got heaps of interest. I mean, spanning bio-inspired robotics to the flight dynamics and the controls of natural flyers. When you were growing up, did you ever imagine you would end up creating robots that can replicate the flying abilities of insects? Not at all. <laughs> I mean, I, I was interested in nature in general and, and technology, all things that were mechanical that would move. And that's why I decided to study mechanical engineering. But I would have not expected it would bring me into this field. <laughs> I started with insect robotics or at that point it was actually hummingbird robotics <laughs> at the Free University of Brussels. I joined a project which was trying to develop a robotic version of a hummingbird and I came there with my background in mechanical engineering and mechatronics. Immediately it really caught my attention so at the end I decided to stay and do my PhD there on that topic. Could you describe what you were most fascinated by on that project? If you look at a hummingbird as an animal it's just fascinating. The way it can fly it can hover very precisely you know, next to a flower when it's feeding on it. But it can also fly across the Mexican Gulf and cross it at uh, one go. They are so agile, so maneuverable, uh, yet very precise. And so that was, of course, something fascinating. And I was like, okay, it's a challenge. Can we actually build something like that as, as engineers? And at the same time, it made us very curious, you know, about, okay, how do these animals fly and how do they manage to do so awesome air stunts they are doing? That's one of the key aspects of your field, isn't it? Because you're not just creating something from scratch for robotics. You first have to look at the animal kingdom and understand what's going on there before we can then try and replicate it. Yeah, so certainly it's a very multidisciplinary field. During my PhD research, I was uh, looking a lot into the biological literature, trying to basically yeah, understand how, how these animals fly, but also how they sense their motions. Because that's uh, one of the challenges when you want to design like a hummingbird-like or even insect-like a robot. As far as we know, they actually have to use sensors and, and their brains to kind of figure out how to move their wings in order to stabilize themselves. And that's, that's the major challenge also for us as a roboticist. So it's not just a straightforward repeating pattern, it's something that has to be adaptable to the dynamic situation. Certainly, yeah. We can observe animals, so we know what they are doing in order to, you know, like uh, hover or fly sideways. But why exactly they are doing it? And for example, if we disturb them with, you know, like a uh, sudden gust, they, they manage to recover very quickly. And how do they recover? They, they have to use, you know, some sensors. And that's something much harder for us to understand because you cannot look into their brains. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, very, that's very true. So I suppose so you have to kind of try and infer what sensors are needed and then try and build them and then test them and see if your hypothesis was right, which I imagine takes some time. 
Certainly, yeah. So, of course, you can use a lot of mathematic models, but doesn't always represent the real uh, system. But we actually, uh, with the first tailless vehicle we built here at Delphi University, the Delphi Nimble, not only did we build a vehicle that is kind of inspired by insects and flies like that, but we could even use it to actually study the flight of insects. So basically, indirectly, we could look into the insect's brains because we could look into the brains of, of the robot, into its uh, flight computer. So we knew exactly what it was doing. And then we could learn a little bit about insects because we could see the same flight patterns in insects. So it was very exciting. That's absolutely incredible. Has anyone tried to replicate your approach since then? Because that sounds like quite a pioneering attitude. Yeah, I think we will see more and more research like that. There is a group at Purdue University. They uh, build like hummingbird scale robots. Their approach is more about how to learn uh, the robotic hummingbird to do maneuvers that the real hummingbirds are doing without knowing, okay, what do we have to do with the wings to achieve such a maneuver? So they basically use algorithms that learn that on their own. This is crazy. To best understand the animal kingdom, we recreate the limbs and the movement mechanics. And then from that, we're able to extrapolate how their brains work. To me, that's just incredible. The Delphi Nimble is an awesome project. So huge congratulations to your team. Mate, can you talk us through how hard is it to create a robot that can fly in every direction? Because there is no tail or anything that you could use to control and stabilize the vehicle. Everything is done by, by the wings, right? So for example, if you want to rotate the body such that it turns you know, left or right, uh, you need to, for example, increase the amplitude of the flapping on, on one of your wings and that gives you more thrust on that side and makes your body tilt left. You can, of course look into nature and you see that happening but now how do you translate that into the mechanics mm. of the robot <laughs> That's the big challenge. Absolutely. To give our listeners a sense of the speeds at which these wings are flapping, I mean, how many repetitions are we talking in a minute? So in case of the Delphi Nimble, it's about 16 wing beats per second. 16 a second. Okay. And the smaller the robot, the, the higher it is. So Harvard, they are making these robo bees. Uh, they are really like truly at insect scale. So mm. three centimeters wingspan. And those flap over 100 times per second. Wow. But it's still nothing compared to, for example, a mosquito. Mosquito, mosquito uh, flaps up to 1,000 times per second. That's why you hear this high-pitched uh, buzzing sound. <laughs> <laughs> God, that's crazy. Okay, so to me, those sort of repetitions sound quite power-intensive. How do you power these things? Yeah, yeah, you're totally right. They can get power-intensive, and that's why you actually see hovering, flapping flight only at small scales. So if you look into nature, you can see insects hovering, but there's no larger animal than a hummingbird that could sustain hovering uh, flight for, for a longer time. And that's due to the fact that you have a wing that you constantly are accelerating and decelerating. At small scales, that works a, a bit better because of scaling laws, but still what you're trying to do is store the energy at the end of one wing beat and as the wing starts moving backwards you want to release the energy again so you're trying to have some sort of a spring somewhere in the system and it can be the wing itself which is a bit flexible or some researchers are adding springs purposefully into the drivetrain such that they can store this energy and then release it again is that kind of recreating the bird's muscles the use of springs yeah, yeah, basically the muscles, that's something we're still missing as uh, engineers. Huh? Most free-flying robots work at the moment using rotary motors. 
And then you have to design some transmission mechanism that will convert this rotation into rocking motion, so into the flapping. Somewhere there you can introduce a spring to smooth out the power requirements. We do not have an actuator like a muscle that would move like cooling. We have materials like that, but they are either too slow or too weak. When you look at flying vehicles humans have created conventionally, they are reliant on a rotating motion. Nature seems to favor wings. Does nature have an advantage there, a sort of efficiency that is gaining? Okay, the situation in which we are uh, is not ideal because we have to convert this rotation, uh, rotating motion. So like if you want to, to uh, fly and flap your wings, a linear actuator would be better. And actually at the very small scales, like the RoboBee of Harvard University, they are actually using actuators that can contract. It's a piezo element material where if you apply voltage it will change its length. The disadvantage is that this change of length is very small and it uh, only works well if you do this change at very high frequency. So that's why they can use it at the insect scale where the wing is moving at over 100 times per second. But if you want to scale it up that doesn't work. So we're trying at the moment to develop materials that will allow us to cut out the rotation motion. Is that right? Indeed, yeah. So there are already some first materials like shape memory alloys, which is a material which will change its length if, if you heat it. So far, there is no material that would fit within the requirements we have through uh, muscle. If you put aside studying animals, what is the advantage of trying to create robots that use insect flying mechanisms rather than just sticking with propellers that are used elsewhere? If in future we will be living in a society where we rely a lot on, on robots, that it will be all around us and they will be on the ground, but they will be also in the air. Looking at something that is more animal-like will be much nicer. Societal acceptability of the technology around us is actually very important. But there are also more practical issues like safety. Current drones, they fly with propellers, the sharp blade that is rotating at very high speed. You don't want uh, your fingers anywhere near those props, even if it's a smaller drone. With flapping, the wing is very soft because it needs to be lightweight and it's moving back and forth. So if you hit something, you just bounce off. And at the same time, it's also safer for the vehicle itself because it doesn't lose stability. If you have like a quadcopter, if one of the propellers stops spinning, then it's a big disturbance and often the quadcopter will just crash. With a flapping wing, you don't get that problem. So safety is also another advantage of nature-inspired flyers. I would love to talk now about your Flapper Drones project, Mate, which looks absolutely awesome. Can you talk us through what your vision is for the Flapper Drones and actually to listeners what they are? Imagine a hummingbird-like robot. It's just beautiful to look at. That's actually what we're doing in Flapper Drones. So we're creating uh, robots for, for entertainment, for shows. You can imagine a concert during which you have a flock of birds that is flying you know, in a synchronized, choreographed way, responding to music. They can have a bird-like or insect-like form, but we could also make them more humane. So we could make a robotic angel. So you could also imagine going to a theme park where you have a forest full of flying fairies. So that's our vision and we're actually not that far from doing that. Oh wow, that's fantastic. How many years do you think before, you know, if I go to a theme park in the future, will I be treated to a display of your flapper drones? We actually expect that within uh, less than a year we will be able to have like a small show with let's say 10 drones flying at a concert, for example. We tend to think of it as kind of an aerial ballet with robots. It's really exciting.
as you scale up and try to take these incredible flapper drones out of a lab environment, what are the challenges that you're trying to overcome? So certainly flying outdoors is challenging for any drone. In the long term, we would also like to make these drones for outdoors. Uh, but actually, we're focusing mostly on indoor flying and shows uh, that are happening indoors. Because one of the aspects that is actually nice about the flapper drones is that because they are so safe, we can fly closer to people. And because of their animal-like form, it's much easier for people to connect with them. So we want to make these shows more interactive. Do you see insect robotic flying technology being used in other ways in the future? If you look further into future, when we have you know these muscle-like actuators, that is the last piece missing in order to go smaller and smaller. If we now look 20 years ahead, maybe, then I can imagine we will have really insect-scale robots. And then you can use them not as like individual robots, but as a swarm. And yeah, you could think of applications like search and rescue, where you want to explore a house after a fire in there, and you just release a swarm of these tiny flying robots, and they just look around and come back and tell you where the survivors are. But there are also even more crazy ideas like robotic pollination, which, okay, the question is, would that ever be practical? But it's somewhere where this could lead us. Matos, just final question on the design themselves. Is 3D printing an essential aspect of the design? And if so, why? I wouldn't say it's an essential aspect of the design, but it's a tool that allows us to develop much, much quicker. We don't have to wait to get our new parts. Basically, you design your part. If it's a larger part, you get it printed overnight. If it's a smaller part, like on our small robots, you can have it in an hour or two. So you can, throughout one day, you can go through several design iterations. So it really speeds up the process. And in a way, it is advantageous because it gives you more freedom in the shapes you can create. Matteo, is there anything you'd like to say to our listeners? Uh, yeah, if you were inspired by what I was just explaining, please check out our website because you can see the drones flying there. Yeah, one thing is hearing about our robots, but if you see them, it's even cooler. Absolutely agree with that. The website is flapper-drones.com. They really are absolutely stunning, and then seeing them in flight is very eerie. It's like a haunting beauty to it. So I'm very excited by this, Matteo. So much of what we talk about in sci-fi is often geared towards dystopian, quite negative and quite cynical, but you're approaching this with such optimism, I feel. Yeah, bringing joy and emotions, it's our goal. We want to create drones that are friendly. Dr. Matei Karasek, thank you so much for your time today, and congratulations again on the amazing inventions, uh, the Delphi Nimble and the Flapper drones. Don't forget to check out the Make It Soon Facebook page, where you can see videos of Matei's creations in action. Matei, thank you so much. That's us. Thanks, Marcus. It was a pleasure. So a stormtrooper, a Jedi, and a Wookiee walk into a cantina bar. And the Jedi says, these are not the droids you are looking for. The stormtrooper says, these are not the droids I am looking for. And the Wookiee says, because that's literally all they ever say in those movies. I mean, the galaxy's hardest fighters, but laziest language students. <laughs> also, the Wookiee did a lot of pre-drinks before they set out. You can make a better punchline happen. All you've got to do is head to makeitsoon.com slash donate. All donations will go towards something funnier for next season. That's makeitsoon.com slash donate. If you remember our Spacebug episode, you'll recall Hayden's skin-crawling reaction to the video of the botfly hatching out of a human's arm. God damn, nature can be gross. That said, human births aren't exactly pretty either. 
If you're a fan of the more hands-off approach to gestation, like in The Matrix or I Am Mother, you will love the next interview. I dived down under and spoke to Professor Matthew Kemp to find out more about the incredible working artificial wombs his lab has developed. We are super lucky today as we're about to hear from one of the world's foremost scientists who is literally leading the field in the development of artificial wombs. Joining us from Perth, Australia, I'm delighted to welcome to the show Professor Matt Kemp, Deputy Director and Head of Perinatal Research Laboratories at WORF, the Women and Infants Research Foundation. Matt, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you here. Thanks, Marcus. Thanks for having me on. Matt, you've got two PhDs. You've done research around the world. You've studied at Oxford and Harvard. And in the past five years alone, you've published 65 peer-reviewed papers, which is an insanely high output. I feel like I should be getting you on for an episode on sleep deprivation. I mean, how do you even keep all those plates spinning? <laughs> My wife says I don't have enough hobbies, so perhaps that's the reason. <laughs> I suspected that you would be the same with all of the work that you do. When you find something that you're uh, you're interested in that and it's enjoyable uh, to do and it's rewarding, then it takes off a little bit of a life of its own. It's not really punching a nine to five. You know, you can get a bit done. Many of our listeners, including me, will be approaching this this topic from a sci-fi lens. And our, our fascination, my fascination for sure, with artificial wombs was ignited by classics like The Matrix and Brave New World. Pretty much anything involving raising clones, but... I think you've come from a very different perspective. Could you tell our listeners what made you interested in artificial wombs in the first place? The work that we do is very much grounded in preterm birth, and preterm birth is certainly in places like Australia, and I would suspect in the UK, the leading cause of death in children aged up to age five. Some data from WHO suggests that there are around 15 million babies that are born uh, too early every year. That's probably an underrepresentation. We also estimate that at least a million of those babies will die, and that's certainly an underrepresentation. So this is a really significant health problem. One of the, I guess, good news stories out of all of this is, however, that over the past 30 or 40 years with things like improved ventilation technology, something that's fairly contemporary at the moment, but also treatments like antenatal steroids and exogenous surfactant therapy, survival and, I guess, disease-free survival rates for most preterm infants and noting that the earlier you're born, the more likely you are to run into trouble. For most of these babies, their outcomes have really improved over the past 30 or 40 years. The big exception to that really is these babies that are born right down on the border of viability and that's you know, probably 20 to, to 24 weeks gestation in a high-resource environment. In a low-resource environment, that shifts four or six weeks north. This area is of specific interest because we've got this resistant rump right down at the border of viability that haven't seen the same sorts of benefits that their slightly older peers have, and we really wanted to do something about that. My understanding is that the reason there's this hard border, as you say, this viability is ultimately it comes down to lung development. Well, you know, so lung maturation is quite a complex phenomenon, but broadly speaking, the more surface area you've got and the more compliant that basically means the easier it is to inflate or deflate something without having to put more force into it. The better a lung is equipped to do gas exchange and there's some other factors that are involved as well. The production of something called surfactant, which lowers surface tension and makes that expansion and deflation easier and stabilizes the gas exchange surface area. At a very simplistic level, at this 20, 21, 22 week gestation, the lung is, is really poorly developed as a gas exchange organ. The surface area is comparatively small. There's vanishingly small or surfactant production, so that means your compliance is not nearly as good. Uh, the lung tends to collapse a lot more easily. It's, it's basically not uh, a terribly effective gas exchange device. And that's one of the reasons these extremely preterm babies run into such trouble when we try and ventilate them. 
great outline of the problem that you guys are setting out to solve. Ventilators just aren't adequate at such a young stage of development. Can you give a brief summary for our listeners as to what it is your team has done to date and what you're currently working on? If you look at the history of artificial percentage of development, the Japanese have been for probably the past 20 or 30 years on and off the real leaders in this discipline. We have a wonderful working relationship with the team at Tohoku University Hospital in Sendai, which is a couple of hours north of Tokyo. We started working with a platform that they've been developing since about 2009. Guy Yui Mura and another esteemed researcher up there, Tadashi Matsuda, have been working on parallelizing uh, an artificial placenta circuit. And I think they were the, the guys that came up with the idea of instead of running just one circuit, if you put a circuit in parallel, then you uh, substantially lower the resistance, which was a bit of a game changer. This is complete guesswork on my part, but when you're talking about parallelizing circuits, are you talking about separating out the delivery of nutrient-enriched fluids from the oxygen supply? No, I'm, what I'm talking about is instead of just running one tube to one oxygenator and then back to a fetus, you're running two tubes to separate oxygenators and then back to a fetus. In doing so, you significantly reduce the resistance on the circuit, which reduces the afterload on the heart, which means that the system works a lot more efficiently and with much less stress on the fetus. Most groups that are using the fetal heart as the power source for the system use that model. So that's a key point. So this system is being powered by the fetus's own beating heart. And the problems in the past might have been that you're trying to do this gas exchange in an artificial environment and forcing it through a machine and the fetus just didn't have the strength to flush their own blood out of their system through an external machine. There are many different permutations to how you can engineer one of these devices. Broadly speaking, how our system works is we put catheters into two umbilical arteries and those umbilical arteries feed blood out to some gas exchange devices and that system is pressured by a fetal heart and then gas exchange occurs and then oxygenated blood returns to the fetus through a centralized umbilical vein and then oxygenates the animal. There are some systems that use what's called a venous venous system. That's where there's a, a large vein, it's usually a jugular vein, is connected to a, uh, an external roller pump that drives blood through an external power source through an oxygenator and then back to the fetus. And that has advantages and disadvantages, but that's not the system that we're working with at the moment here in Perth and also up in Japan. I was looking at one of the images of the EV artificial womb on the Worth website, mm -hmm. and it seems to show two separate entry points into the lamb fetus. Are the uh, liquid nutrient infusions being delivered directly to the esophagus? Ah, no, I think I think what you're referring might be a little bit of artistic license on <laughs> the oh, okay, cool. design people. <laughs> All of the nutrient delivery for the system is via that artificial placenta circuit. Some of the clever guys that work with us have designed a nutrient cocktail, I guess, lipids, carbohydrates, amino acids. And that's fed into that circuit downstream of the oxygenators. And that gives the, the fetus all of the power, I guess, that it needs to uh, grow and develop, hopefully, on a normal growth pattern. That sounds insanely difficult. I struggle to figure out what I need to eat on a daily basis, let alone trying to speculate what a natural womb environment is delivering to a fetus to develop healthily. So amazing that you guys have been able to do that. But I'm curious, are there ways you could optimize the nutrients that are being delivered to sort of surpass the limitations of normal growth? Because obviously delivering nutrients takes a toll on the mother's body in the natural capacity, and that is kind of a rate limiting factor. So if you remove that ceiling, are we able to grow bigger or healthier or faster kids in these artificial environments? Um, to answer your first question, I think if you're just talking about these systems generally, I think in terms of optimization, there's a, a vast amount of work to be done. I think we really are at the very early stages 
of developing this towards clinical application. You know, everything from the, the way that we oxygenate these fetuses to the way that we feed them is, has got a lot of work remaining to be done on it. In terms of turbocharging growth, I suspect you could overfeed these fetuses, whether or not that would generate a particularly healthy fetus. I'm not sure. That sort of sits outside of the remit of what we're doing at the moment. Yeah, I suppose you're trying to deliver healthy babies, not, you know, sort of futuristic humanoid type optimized creatures. <laughs> We're staying well away from eating. I think that sounds healthy. You touched on the journey towards clinical trials there. How long do you think before we are seeing this sort of technology being tested on humans? Because am I right in thinking at the moment it's predominantly tested on lambs? Traditionally, sheep fetuses or goat fetuses have been the models that have been used to do this work. And there's a pretty good reason for that is that a lot of what we know in fetal physiology comes from the sheep. Lots of what we know about obstetric treatments, antenatal steroids being a particularly good example, again, developed in sheep before they test in humans. So the sheep is a fairly high fidelity model system for human pregnancy. Also, the growth trajectory is not the same, um, but um, certainly there are some similarities. The size of these fetuses are amenable uh, to doing this sort of work that we need to do with them. Okay, so it's, it's a good enough fit that we can develop sort of a confident understanding of the viability of the technology. Yes, sir. One of the key facets of this approach is that you're obviously doing a, an early C-section uh, and then transplanting a living fetus from its mother's womb into the artificial one. Correct. Are you aware of any critical time frames that surgeons are up against when they're connecting to the artificial umbilical cords and through that the placenta? Really as quickly and as safely as possible. We're sort of at the stage now where we can get this done in about 15 minutes. Whoa. The quicker you are, the less stress that you put on the animal as you do that transfer. Fast forwarding to the opposite end of the gestation period, when it's time for the fetus to be born again, as it were, there's currently a degree of ambiguity in natural births around what role vaginal births play in normal child development, specifically when it comes to the transfer mm -hmm. of bacteria from the mother to the child. Mm -hmm. Is this something you've ever considered trying to replicate in the fetuses you're delivering? The jury is still very much out on the role, if any, of the vaginal microbiome in, in seeding a fetus. So they're worthwhile questions for sure, but until you've got a normal tensive fetus that's got a normal growth trajectory, all of those questions, there's, there's not a lot of point in answering them until you've got the fundamentals well and truly in hand. In October last year, in 2019, Eindhoven University in the Netherlands, they got funding to test what looks like a version of the bio bag, a sort of artificial womb, and they're going to fit it with 3D printed fake human embryos covered in sensors and try to closely mimic the natural womb environment. One of the things that struck me is the extent to which they're trying to replicate the natural mother's womb. So they're, they're going for darkness, they're going for the sounds of a mother's heartbeat. Do you have any sort of hypothesis yourself as to what extent those factors are going to play a, a pivotal role in normal fetal development? All of those sorts of things, the circadian rhythm, absolutely, that's going to be very important. Uh, whether or not auditory stimulus that matches ostensibly a, a normal environment in utero, well, I'm not sure how you would exactly do that because that's going to be hugely variable, probably a maternal heartbeat. All of those things are going to be very, very important to try and drill down on once we have the fundamental physiology uh, and endocrinology to handle. So in terms of how we'll actually start using this technology in the future, the designs look quite portable. Can you envisage them being fitted quite routinely on ambulances? 
The hardware itself is not hugely complex. In terms of its portability, I think what would restrain that is the cross-functional expertise that you would need in one place to successfully operate one of these platforms is probably going to mean its use is fairly highly restricted. You know, in the UK, you might have one in Edinburgh, you might have one unit in London, and maybe another one in Manchester or something like that, and that would probably be about it. Continuing that thought experiment, could you imagine a scenario where a fetus is deliberately removed prematurely and placed into one of these artificial wombs? I'm thinking, uh, obviously, with the mother's consent, but instances where if the mother's suffering from cancer or perhaps drug addiction, those factors could threaten a healthy fetal development. Can you imagine it becoming sort of like a routine intervention tool? I wouldn't suspect it's ever going to be a particularly routine intervention tool. One, because I think, again, of the the, the cost base and the expertise base that would be required to support this technology would be subject to the same sorts of ethical constraints that all medical devices and interventions are subject to. That's quite distinct from becoming a, a lifestyle option, and I think that is extremely unlikely. So let's say we fast forward 100 years from now. If this technology has really blossomed in its maturity, what reservations would you have around that becoming a sort of equally preferred choice for a lot of families to experience pregnancy? I think if you're talking about bang for buck in terms of uh, maternal and child healthcare spend, I think it would be inordinately wasteful. Not only would it be prohibitively expensive, but I also suspect you'd have some pretty significant ethical reservations about doing that. I just want to circle back to something you mentioned in passing earlier, exogenous surfactant therapy. You were discussing that separately to sort of these birth bag interventions. What, what is it? <laughs> yeah, so... Um, uh, again, so surfactant is a phospholipid, a matrix really, that's deposited on the air space surfaces in the lungs. It's made up of four different proteins and a few other bits and pieces. Broadly speaking, it lowers the surface tension of the lung and stabilizes the tiny, tiny little air sacs so they don't collapse. And for babies that are born preterm, they may not have a lot of surfactant. And so there are some clever companies, I think Mitsubishi in Japan does it, certainly Chiesi in Italy do it, where they collect surfactant from either pigs or cows, send it through all of the usual GMP processes so that it's safe to use and standardize. And you can instill that into the lung of preterm babies and it does the same job that native surfactant would do. It improves lung compliance and stability, makes breathing easier and safer and more effective. Oh, wow, okay. So it's kind of in the way that we used to get insulin from pigs, I guess. Correct. Of the breakthroughs to date across this incredible field, have any aspects really taken you by surprise? We found a paper that came out of the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, I think it was in 1958, where a group there had done some work using pre-viable human fetuses that are around sort of four or 500 grams and maintained them for 12 hours using, by today's standards, really antiquated equipment. And so that was just really remarkable, one, because it was so hugely innovative for its time, but also it was really promising in that we thought, well, if, if, if those guys can have such a great stride with comparatively simple technology, then perhaps with the benefit of the better tech that we've got now, then this project's really got some legs for it. Matt, final question for you. If you had an unlimited research budget, what would be some of the biggest questions that you would be trying to answer? One of the things that our group has really gone after and is going to continue to go after is, is really the observation that all of the work done in this field to date and prior to 18 months ago that included our work, is it's all being done in fetuses that are quite mature and are also from otherwise healthy ongoing pregnancies. And so if we're focusing on translation, who's the target audience for this? Well, this is extremely preterm babies that are born probably 20, maybe up to 24 weeks gestation. So it's for tiny babies. 
they're coming out of pregnancy early for a particular reason, and that's because there's something wrong with the placenta or there's an infection or there's something wrong with the core. So these are not healthy, ready-to-go fetuses. They're compromised. And so we have to be working with, with compromised fetuses, and we have to be working with very small compromised fetuses. We were the first to go and do that, and I think we've just got some work out in the American Journal OBGYN working with fetuses that we are deliberately exposed to a bacterial product that makes them quite inflamed and put some challenges and some stress on their cardiovascular system. And what that showed us is that these fetuses uh, perform very, very differently on this technology compared to fetuses of the same gestational age but are otherwise healthy. The growth parameters are very different. Their ability to adapt to these platforms is very, very different. They require a lot more management. And so that really underscored to us that the, the model systems we've got to be playing with here have got to try and mimic as best as we possibly can the eventual target client, I guess. And that is a very small, very sick and very compromised fetus. We do have a lot to do. Uh, we're making great progress. There is a very good likelihood that we can get this to work. Certainly we need to get it to work because there is a, a large number of babies that, that need us to get this to work. But we have a, a vast amount of hurdles to get through before getting this anywhere near a clinic. Professor Matthew Kemp of the Women and Infants Research Foundation and the University of Western Australia, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your expertise with us today. We wish you and your team all the best with your ongoing research and we'll be keeping our eyes peeled for your next announcements. If anyone at home wants to find out more about the amazing work Matt and his wider colleagues at WIRF are doing, you can support them at WIRF, which is wirf.com.au. Matt, thank you so much. Good talking to you. This show is made possible by the generosity of listeners like your good self. This show is entirely self-made. Help us bring the next season fresh to your ears at Maximum Warp. Just head to makeitsoon.com slash donate. It literally only takes a moment to donate and it makes such a big difference. If you believe that this show deserves a future, makeitsoon.com slash donate. Help me to bring you more amazing sci-fi content. Thanks so much. I truly appreciate it and I couldn't do it without you. Now, where were we? Presumably something deeply weird. Let's find out. Happily, Professor Kemp and his team are using their womb technology for the betterment of humankind. But what if one of those sprogs grew up as a cheery little Anakin, then went off the rails and turned full Darth Vader on us? If only we could have seen it coming. But wait a second. If you caught our episode on predictive crime technologies, you'll know governments around the world are working on just that. The ability to anticipate crime before it happens and intercept perpetrators early. Are we entering the start of a terrifying Minority Report era in human history? Or could this technology hail something altogether more uplifting? Decide for yourself. I was lucky enough to catch up with Ian Donnelly, one of the founders of Predictive AI in British policing, and he told me how it's being used in the UK today. So the main show was inspired by the book and film Minority Report, which depicts what a society with predictive crime technology might look like. And we talked a lot about the issues of algorithmic bias. Today, we're going to get first-hand insights into the policing side of things and explore the challenges police face in developing predictive crime technology that's fit for purpose. In the main show, we discussed how predictive crime tech is being trialled by West Midlands Police in the UK 
who serve a population of almost 3 million people. We're extremely lucky today to be getting the insights from the man who steered the ship during its inaugural phase on that very project. Our expert this week is digital intelligence expert and former superintendent of West Midlands Police, Ian Donnelly. Ian, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Marcus. Uh, it's really nice to be speaking to you. You're an experienced police investigator, and most recently you were project manager delivering the foundation phase of the National Data Analytics Solution, NDAS which we discussed in the main show, which aims to generate actionable, predictive insights from multiple data sets to help UK law enforcement prioritise resources in order to tackle those issues that pose the greatest risk to the public. I think I actually got the wording off your website, so that might be uh, very much from a horse's mouth. <laughs> that sounds very familiar, yeah. I was a police officer for 30 years. I probably spent nearly half my career in counterterrorism, and I'm now working as an independent advisor to technology companies who are working with law enforcement. Let's talk briefly about NDAS itself then. What, for you, was it aiming to achieve? The majority of the work that the National Data Analytics Solution Project was seeking to do was really around data analytics rather than predictive analytics. So, for example, one of the use cases that we looked at on the project was around modern day slavery. It could be human trafficking for sexual slavery, forced labour. It's a hidden crime. People don't come and tell us that they're victims of modern slavery because they're generally too scared. They don't speak the language because they've been trafficked in from a foreign country. They've had all their documents taken off them. They or their families have been threatened with violence. So it's a hidden crime. So data analytics is a really, really good way of finding what looks like modern slavery within multiple data sets. So you start off from a position of teaching the technology, what does modern slavery look like within the data? So then that means you have to have a load of examples of modern slavery within your data. Once you've taught the machine what modern slavery looks like, you can point it to new data and it will find modern slavery that you didn't know about. There were three use cases that we worked on on the foundation phase, and one of them was specifically around gun and knife crime. So as anyone who's lived in the UK for the last few years will be aware, we had a very serious problem around knife crime in the inner cities, where large numbers of young men in their sort of mid to late teens, early 20s, were dying as a result of being stabbed. So what we set out to do was to try and understand, is it possible to predict who is most likely to commit a first offence of serious violence using a gun or a knife. So we're not talking about someone here who's been involved in crime for many years because we know who those people are. What we were trying to do was to identify those young men who were on a rapidly escalating trajectory of criminality identify those who were most likely to commit their first offence using a gun or a knife in order, and this is the important thing, not in order to pick on them or to make their lives difficult, in order to intervene with them in a supportive way using, for example, health, education, social services, drug and alcohol treatment or whatever, in order to course correct someone, someone who's in that category. You're not going to suddenly turn them into a sort of choir boy overnight, but what you can do is subtly course correct their life trajectory so that you take them away from whatever it is that is potentially putting them in that very toxic situation. So we trained the model using about 25 years worth of serious violence data across lots of different data sets. And the final model, I think, was looking at something like 500 million lines of data. It's definitely possible to see a pattern of offending which is rapidly escalating. 
The challenge is to know when that behavior is going to happen. What is the window in time? Are we talking six weeks? Are we talking six months? Are we talking three years? And that's the really challenging thing. Google Vision Cloud had to apologize this year because their image recognition algorithm, which is designed to recognize and label what's going on in an image or a CCTV feed, it was mislabeling black healthcare workers as holding guns when they were actually holding the same medical thermometers as their white colleagues. So it begs the question, if companies like Google and Microsoft can't reliably train software to accurately recognize faces or behaviors from ethnic minorities, should we be aware of smaller tech companies pitching their services into what is currently an unregulated field of policing? It's really quite early days in terms of this technology. In time, it's going to get better. What we don't want here is a black box kind of solution where you ask it a question and it's, it's an answer and you've no idea how it got to that answer. That's completely unacceptable ethically and legally in the United Kingdom and, and long may that remain the case. I think the, the worrying thing really for me, if we're talking about being members of a human family, which I strongly believe we are. I think we've got very strong regulation and oversight in place in the UK. Where I think this becomes really dangerous is in countries that do not share our respect for human rights. I'm deliberately going to talk about China here because I, I believe that the Chinese have shown themselves to play sort of fast and loose with human rights on all sorts of levels. And certainly this technology can become extremely worrying if you give it unrestricted access to all sorts of data sets. Uh, so I'm thinking, you know, your financial data, your telecommunications data, your web browsing, your health data, all of these sort of things that would just be absolutely no-go areas in the United Kingdom then what can be a force for public good suddenly becomes artificial intelligence as a means of social control. Actually, I wanted to talk a little bit about facial recognition technology because I think that's quite relevant to what's going on. A little background for our listeners. Facial recognition technology is used to identify known suspects on CCTV. Typically, it does this by creating a biometric photo, which is numerical representation of the person's facial features, and then looking for matches in the National Police Image Database, which I think is thought to have around 20 million searchable images. That's currently being trialled by two police forces in the UK, the Metropolitan Police, which covers about 8 million Londoners, and South Wales Police, which covers about 1.2 million people. And they've used it to surveil large public gatherings like football matches, festivals, transport hubs. And both forces say they're still piloting the technology. But according to an investigation done by the group Big Brother Watch and reported by The Independent, of the eight facial recognition technology trials carried out in London between 2016 and 2018 by the Met Police, 96% of the time, the Met falsely identified innocent people as suspects. Do you think it's right, Ian, at this stage that we should be using technology in active deployments when it's got such high error rates? It's a really nuanced argument. There are certain scenarios where I think facial recognition can be extremely useful as a filtering and triage technology. So, for example, if we have a bombing or a shooting or a murderer who is on the run and we are desperately trying to find that individual as quickly as possible in order to get them into custody, then I think it's entirely legitimate to use that type of technology in order to deploy it at a location or locations where we believe that that person may be in order to assist officers who are seeking out individual. Where I think it becomes problematic is when you deploy it sort of a scattergun way in sort of busy public places 
to identify someone who might have committed a criminal offence at some point in the past, who is then going about their day-to-day business and then happens to be picked up by a facial recognition camera while they're out shopping with their wife or girlfriend. That scenario, to my mind, is totally unacceptable. It kind of negates the opportunity for someone to actually change or to redeem themselves in the eye of society. If I genuinely was in that position and I wanted to turn my life around and start again, would I be happy to be continually getting stopped while I was you know, going about my lawful business? No, I wouldn't. So I, I do think it's a nuanced thing. A lot of people's fears would be that Either you risk stigmatizing certain people, like you say, people who are trying to be rehabilitated or move on with their lives, or indeed, if you do have, during this technology's infancy in particular, or potentially in other countries, maybe algorithmic biases, you risk routinely, perhaps unwittingly harassing certain demographics. In the UK, there's a lot of controversy around stop and search policies and how some communities feel that they are adversely impacted by that on a sort of profiling way. It sounds like taking a very measured and specific approach to how we apply this sort of facial recognition technology to only try and tackle active crimes rather than a general scanning would be the distinction. Is that what you're saying? That that's that tipping point? I think to do it in an indiscriminate way in, in public places and then having officers swooping on some bloke who happened to get arrested for shoplifting five years earlier, that will create a reputational damage, not just to the police service, but to the technology itself. However, if, God forbid, a member of my family was murdered and we knew who had done it and that person was on the run and we knew that they had a strong association with a particular geography in the UK with particular individuals and we deployed cameras in a particular location and as a result of doing that we identified that person and we got them into custody quickly then 100% that's the right thing to do. At the moment we have a very clear law which says that if your DNA is taken or your fingerprints are taken and you're sort of released without charge those records have to be destroyed automatically. Now, my understanding is when it comes to biometric photos, they're not deleted automatically. You have to request their deletion. What are your thoughts? It's a similar argument to the retention of DNA. Again, it's a, it's a nuanced argument. If it's bad law, then it needs to be changed by government. But until that happens, then um, police will continue to do that. Uh, in terms of the inherent limitations of predictive crime technology going forward, what would you say is an acceptable failure rate or error rate, perhaps is a better term, when you're trying to act on intelligence? It's a really good question and certainly we agonised over this quite a lot because with data analytics it's a, it's like a dial effectively. If you imagine a slider going from 0 to 100, you're never going to get 100% certainty. Setting that slider, it's going to be a balance between what is operationally manageable in terms of the numbers of individuals who are identified by a particular algorithm So, for example, if we use the serious violence one, if we set the sensitivity of that to approximately 60-70% likelihood, then it's a relatively small number of names that you end up getting. If you set the slider back to sort of 30 or 40%, you get literally tens of thousands of names, which are unmanageable from an operational point of view. So I don't think there is a, a simple answer to that question, quite honestly. Data analytics is not something that you do and you do once and then you walk away from. It's an iterative process. 
you teach the machine, you address the false positives, and you then sort of try and understand, okay, why is it giving me those results? And the only way that you can improve the accuracy of the system is over time and by deploying it operationally. But from an ethical and legal point of view, I certainly wouldn't want to be taking action against someone unless I was pretty confident that they fitted the profile of someone who we needed to be worried about. And then the important point is we wouldn't just go out and start arresting people because they haven't actually done anything. That's the whole point about intervening in a sort of supportive way and saying, okay, let's look at this person. What's going on in their life at the moment? How can we help? That sounds like a very healthy divergence from the plot of Minority Report, where it's very much like, ah, sorry, the algorithm said you're going to do something bad, we're locking you up. (laughs) There's not much of a chat about it. So I'm glad to hear we're headed in a more empathic direction. I think it would be remiss if we didn't touch on what's been obviously going on worldwide lately in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I just wanted to gather your thoughts on what you think the legacy of George Floyd's tragic death should be when it comes to predictive crime technology. I'm absolutely horrified by what happened to George Floyd. I think as every right-minded police officer around the world should be, to have done that was just completely unacceptable. I don't think that would happen in the UK. I certainly hope it wouldn't. Is anything being done proactively to try and address potential bias in the training sets of data that you're using for these machine learning algorithms? Definitely. It's a definite risk that you have to be ever so careful to avoid. There's been a lot of work done on all of this. Dr. Marion Oswald, she's a senior law fellow at Northumbria University, and she's produced a very helpful mnemonic called AlgoCare, which we used very carefully to address all of those issues. It stands for uh, advisory, lawful, granularity, ownership, changeability, accuracy, responsibility, and explainability. So certainly in our project, we were very mindful of this, and I insisted that we strip out any data relating to ethnicity at all. And to be absolutely sure that we weren't baking into the algorithms an ethnic bias, we, as well as taking out all data relating to ethnicity, we also took out all data relating to geography. So we weren't baking into the system the geographic bias where you might find, for example, a larger number of young black men or young Asian men, for example. So we were only looking at behavioural characteristics and what that person had actually done over the years rather than where they lived or what colour their skin was. This really chalks into what we're talking about in the more broader context in the main show about algorithmic bias. There was a slightly funny but also sad example with Microsoft when they launched a chatbot called Tay a couple of years ago and they've been training it in a nice little safe sanitised data set and then they released it on the real world so it could just chat to people on Twitter and formulate automated responses and within 24 hours it was a vitriolic racist which is unfortunate and sort of reflective of how awful Twitter can be as a space. There is naturally a concern from a lot of minority communities that as we transition towards a society which is informed, not necessarily led, but more greatly informed by the outputs of algorithms. You strive to create non-bias. Do you see that as being part of the agenda at the moment in the UK? You need to be ever so careful that you're not reinforcing pre-existing biases. So for example, if you have a community that is a deprived community, where inevitably for all sorts of complex reasons to do with low life expectations, poor role models, unemployment, all of these different social factors that will inevitably result in higher levels of crime and disorder. And then if, for example, some of those individuals tend to be from one particular ethnic group, then if you're using predictive algorithms, you need to be ever so careful that you don't then end up deploying police officers 
into a location on that basis because surprise surprise guess what happens you find more crime the more cops you put into an area you find more crime and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy so you create a feedback loop in your predictive algorithm that's right gosh i've never really considered it in that way Ian, you've given me tremendous heart in the whole future of predictive (laughs) crime technology based on your extremely thoughtful and measured approach. Thank you so much for giving us your time and your wisdom today. I have one final question before you go. What are your predictions for the future of predictive policing, both in the UK and worldwide, I'd say over the next 30 to 40 years? Provided there's the ethical oversight and the checking mechanisms in place, and the fact that technology is transparent and explainable, I can see artificial intelligence being a huge benefit, not just to policing, but to communities by making them safer and by identifying potentially dangerous individuals sooner. But it's not going to happen overnight. And I think we need to be ever so careful that, you know, we're not deploying this stuff in a haphazard or a careless way. It needs to be given a lot of thought. The crucial point being it can only assist human decision making. Ultimately, we need a human being at the other end to say, okay, so this is what we think the technology is saying. So what do we think as human beings? Fantastic. Ian, thank you so much for your time. For anyone listening at home, if you want to check out more about Ian's work or get in touch with Ian, check out ik-insights.com. Ian Donnelly, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. And you've been absolutely fantastic. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Folks, that brings this season of Make It Soon to a close. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the bonus interviews and the behind the scenes glimpses each pioneer gave us. And I hope you've enjoyed all the weird and wonderful inventions and topics we covered in the main show. This season was recorded remotely with my wonderful guests between April and July 2020 during the national lockdown. So a huge thanks to all my amazing guests who persevered through connection dropouts and crazy latencies and valiantly battled on so we could bring you some top-notch sci-fi banter. You are all my heroes and I'm truly grateful for your time, your minds and your fine humour. And to you, dear listener, thank you for joining me on this outlandish adventure. If you've enjoyed this season of Make It Soon, please head to the show's website and donate whatever you can. Your donation will help pay for an editor, getting these shows out at maximum warp. To donate, just head to makeitsoon.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Marcus Martin, and it's been a pleasure journeying through the inventory of sci-fi with you this season. I hope to be back again soon. And to all you scientists and inventors out there, in the immortal, bastardised words of Jean-Luc Picard, make it soon. All right, I'll work on that impression for next season.